Board Gaming with Education, a podcast for anyone curious about how games and education mix. We explore various topics like game-based learning, gamification, and board games, and the impacts they have on learning. Here's your host, Dustin Stats. Coming right up, we have another interview episode of Board Game with Education, where I get the chance to interview the designer of Gridopolis, Dave Schultz. We talk about the design process for that game, and we also talk about how it can be leveraged for learning. So be sure to tune into that episode. Before we jump in, one quick announcement, go to boardgamewitheducation.com, sign up for our newsletter. That's where you'll get access to a lot of other resources articles that come out every month. We release a newsletter for our community and included in that newsletter are different articles and resources from the month. Also, we give you a weekly newsletter with podcast episode releases as well as information from our YouTube channel. And most importantly, what is really great about the newsletter coming up is you will receive a discount to our game-based learning course that will be released on Monday next week, July 20th, 2020. So if you are a part of our email community, you will receive this special email community discount. So be sure to sign up for the newsletter to get that. All right, now let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of Board Game with Education. I am thrilled to be joined by Dave Schultz. He is the founder of Gridopolis Games, designer and educator, and he's been teaching at Otis College of Art and Design. I am super excited because this game is awesome, and my wife and I just had a chance to play it yesterday. Definitely recommend checking it out after this interview. Uh, Before we talk more about the game, I kind of want to introduce Dave and tell you about a fun fact that I learned about him. And he is P2 certified paraglider, which I'm, I guess means you can fly on your own. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, you can go uh, off and do a solo. And before you get the P2, you have to have like a, a coach or somebody within visual sight. So it just means you went through all the training. And have you been doing a bit of paragliding on your own since you've been certified? Is this something recent or? Yes, it's fun to fly. I don't know what other people are telling you, but it's just an amazing (laughs) hobby. I don't go as often as I used to though. So that's uh, one regret I have. Been so busy with the startup. Awesome. And I'm excited to learn a little bit more about Gridopolis and your idea behind that and how educators can use it in their classroom as well. Can you share a little bit about your background and maybe a brief snippet about Gridopolis games? Yeah, I guess uh, the quick explanation is I'm a designer and educator, like you mentioned. I have a background in architecture. I got a license in that in the state of California, and it's one of my passions, but it kind of expanded into product design, which I look at as just design on a smaller scale. So I've worked for a lot of different clients over the last 20 plus years, but then uh, most recently, I kind of expanded into education. So I've been teaching at Otis that you mentioned for about 20 years and also online for LinkedIn Learning. And along the way, I ended up having just a lot of clients in the toy category. Uh, I probably did 40 projects for Hasbro, maybe 20 for Mattel. And that's where this Gridopolis really came out of, just seeing what was being produced uh, and not produced and trying to innovate in that space. That's awesome. I'm super excited to to pick your brain some more about Gridopolis. We had a chance to chat a little bit about it. But before we get into Gridopolis, can you tell us about a time you learned something through games? Oh, yeah. I, that, my favorite memories as a kid 
but just spending hours playing with Legos because it was so open-ended. So it's not a traditional game where you're playing against other people, but you can actually participate with other people and just build a whole new scenarios or environments or objects or characters. And that's really, I think, what uh, led me to a career in design, just having this open-ended play with Legos and also ungodly amounts of sketching and, and doodling all the time. So growing up, did you ever design or think of any games to use with Legos or something similar? No, I never designed a, a game at that point in time. It was just about creating, exploring. Uh, a lot of times I would just design buildings. It was very limited back when I was a kid. Now people are pretty lucky. Some of the new Lego sets are just crazy. The buildings and the vehicles, especially the Star Wars stuff. So I'm a little bit jealous. Do you have a favorite Lego set? No, I, have not, I haven't bought any in a long time, but I, I see a lot of stuff online and in the stores. And I'm just jealous with all the spaceships. I think those are probably my favorite if I had to pick one. Any spaceship. I mean, I just had <laughs> such simple bricks most of the time and square windows. Yeah, I love I love the the Star Wars stuff. I mean, I'm not a huge Star Wars like I love the movies. I, the movies are awesome, but I just the Legos are so intricate, and you can build like the huge Death Star. It's crazy. Yeah, not cheap, but you can definitely build it. Yeah, right, right. So then, how did you go from kind of designing Legos as a kid, and then architecture, then into toy design, and now you're designing this? I guess, game system called Gridopolis. How did you make those leaps into this? Well, it's funny. I don't really perceive it as much of a shift, more of just a, an expansion or a difference in scale. So a lot of my heroes growing up were architects. And uh, you'll if you think of a lot of architects you're maybe familiar with, a lot of them aren't doing just buildings. They may, they go into furniture and lighting and a lot of other decorative arts. It is amazing. Just So I think having an architectural background gives you kind of a, a larger perspective on the creative aspect, especially since I had to integrate a lot of other fields. I mean, an architect, it, once you get good at it, you're gonna, you have to have some sort of working knowledge of structural and mechanical and electrical and civil. Otherwise, you're going to be really bad at architecture. So it, I think it's that idea of being creative, but also being a collaborator and, and being able to integrate a very complicated project with, with lots of parties involved. And that is kind of the story for Gridopolis as far as I, when you were talking about going through the playtesting experience and the design experience of the game. Would you say that that mirrors what you've been doing in the past? Yeah, actually, uh, only to a small extent. It was very collaborative with uh, various people, but it was a much longer process. So kind of strange. We just started with a completely blank slate. And every step of the way, I was trying to reinvent, but also build upon stuff that people are already familiar with. So that's the challenge with being innovative, right? So you want to do something no one's ever seen, but it's not horribly complicated. So I tried to leverage knowledge people already had. There's a lot of really popular classic games that everyone just kind of grows up knowing, like checkers or tic-tac-toe or even chess. So there's a certain overlap of how those guys work. So each person has a team and you're moving around, you're trying to capturing. I thought, I got to build upon that. I don't want to kind of reinvent those rules, but I wanted to push it into the third dimension. That's where I thought it could get really interesting. And somehow along the way, as I was creating this, I realized this is a system. If we're going to break it apart and put it back in a box, people can then rearrange it and build it in any size or shape. So that was like a real eye opener. And it 
I think just keeping an open mind and having other people testing it on a regular basis, I was able to uh, check these ideas, see if it made any sense. People liked it. Yeah, we got some excellent feedback. Also teaching at Otis, that really helped because every week I was going into, into the classroom. And so with any free time, I would just ask students, try this out. We got a new idea. So I, I got you know instantaneous feedback from you know what I would consider experts in the toy design field. So I'm excited to talk to you about Gridopolis. Could you share a little bit about the game and the game system? Yeah, the quick explanation is it's a 3D strategy game and system. So that's actually got two innovations in one sentence. So most strategy games are played flat, pretty much everything except maybe Jenga. And we're going into the third dimension. So you're going to play on multiple levels. And even though the board's not that much bigger than your average strategy game, it's got so much more richer and complicated ways to move throughout that 3D space. The system part, it kicks in when during gameplay, everyone has extra pieces. So you can't do this with other flatboard games. They're the same from the beginning to the end. In our game, you can use the extra pieces at any time. So you can either move or use the pieces to build. So a lot of potential problems with the average strategy game, for example, you get stalemate situations or someone just hides in a corner, things like that can to, tend to make them not that interesting. Well, with extra parts, you can extend the set behind somebody or below somebody who is hiding. And all of a sudden they are now fair game and you can eliminate from the, from the board. And there's a couple other innovations too. I'll just mention one of my favorites. We call it the kamikaze move. So in these other board games you're familiar with, you can move anywhere on these flat boards. You still have stalemates in our game too, but we've eliminated one more potential for that with this kamikaze move. So you can jump over somebody, and even though you have nowhere to land, you land outside the board, that's a legal move. So you, you take them, but you're also eliminated. So it's basically a sacrifice move. We love the fact that this is breaking every rule of strategy games. We're in 3D, it's dynamic, it changes, and you can operate off of the board. Yeah, I loved playing playing with my wife and thinking about the 3D moves you could make. And it does take a, a little bit for your brain to warm up to the idea of the moves you can make. And it's there's a lot of, I think, strategy involved in that too. Uh, we think that's a good thing. There definitely is a learning curve. Anytime you go from 2D to 3D, you're going to have to readjust, but it doesn't take that long. And then you can really can see the potential and it's just incredibly engaging. Instead of just jumping over people uh, right or left, you can then jump over them vertically or go diagonally through multiple levels. So there's just so many more ways for things to happen. Awesome. And I'm excited to chat more about Gridopolis, especially because of what I see as a lot of educational applications for the game like problem solving in the game, design thinking, and even I see students maybe working together and collaborating on coming up with their own game with the game system. Would you mind just sharing a little bit about what a player's experience would be like playing the game? Yeah, so that's a long, complicated uh, answer. So I'll just start from the top. So it's a system, but that can be overwhelming for some people. So we've designed a series of games. Some are simple. You can jump in and those are all free and on the website. You can actually make them a little larger, more complicated, and it's very flexible in that regard. So you can do the classic four-player game we call Matrix. If you have less time and only two people, you can do one we call the Twisted Tower. So the beauty of these two examples are it's the same exact rules. Moving, jumping, 
and then building. That's another thing I want to talk about. Work the same, no matter how the set is configured. So briefly about this flexible ar arrangement, as far as at any one time you can move or you can build. So that's something most, I've never seen any other game. So not only three-dimensional, but at any point in the game, instead of moving or jumping somebody, you can actually add or subtract from this three-dimensional grid set. So that puts it into a whole other category. And that was one of the reasons that is um, we had to keep the rules as friendly and familiar as possible. So we want to leverage upon the uh, chess checkers tic-tac-toe I mentioned, because you're already going into the third dimension. And that's just a whole different way to think. So we didn't want to make it too complicated for people, even though this is a very rich environment. Just another one example, in an average game, let's, let's just use chess or checkers. You might have one or two moves with, a, with a, your player. In Gridopolis, since you have the ability to go left, right, or sideways, and then up or down and diagonally on other levels, you easily could have a dozen moves at any one time, sometimes up to 20 at certain points in the game. So to tie it into the educational aspect, we call this STEM without screens. So you're thinking about something logically and strategically, and you're visualizing in three dimensions, but you're doing all of this with your friends. That means it's an educational opportunity, but you're not by yourself programming or building a robot. So it's really f almost encouraging people to come together. And, and learn these skills and techniques and be creative. I, I would put that probably at the top of the list. Be creative with others. And that social aspect, I think, is the kind of like the icing on the, the stem cake. Right, right. I mentioned I was playing with my wife and I just loved so many different aspects of the game in regards to how I think it might play out in a learning environment, whether that's like an after-school program, a summer camp, or in a classroom that has curriculum similar to this is the one was the putting the game together and that satisfaction of building the board was really cool. I don't know if anyone's familiar with like Legos and following the model of this is how you put it together. You kind of get that sense of satisfaction as you do it. And I've never, I've never felt that setting up a board game before. So it was super cool. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, we, I think that's one of the few negatives that we have got from feedback is, hey, this takes a while to set up. And could you maybe have giant pieces already pre-assembled? And so I kind of explored that, but it didn't really go too far. And the reason is it's just not that flexible. You know, you don't want to buy that Death Star from Lego already put together or have it in five pieces. It's kind of part of the experience, putting it together. That's one thing you mentioned. The other thing is you can start to dynamically change it. You could try different shapes, different arrangements. And now with our game design guide coming out pretty soon, you can design your own games. And it's not just the physical set. We've created this, uh, what I call the, a menu of rules. You can pick how you move, you can select how you capture, and you can determine how you win. So there's a series of just five or six questions. Each one has several options, or you can invent your own. And at the end of that process, you may have a completely unique and original game. So that's the, uh, the learning aspect is just kind of uh, melded with being creative. Right. I think you nailed it there too, is part of that setup process. What was going on in my brain, because I, I like board games and I like designing games, was thinking about, okay, this is what we're going to end up playing because I kind of already knew the game and the rules. 
but what can I design down the road? How can I change some things in the game? And I think you you need that as part of the experience because that's that's what the game's all about is this modular system that helps foster design thinking and creativity. Yeah, that's a very good point. We definitely don't recommend design your own game from scratch and then you'll learn it along the way. I think it's way easier and more more fun, more social, more compelling just to get a couple games under your belt first. And then you're going to understand the system, you'll understand the rules, and you'll maybe even start to identify some different strategies, how to beat people or uh, just like you would in any game. And then you can kind of leverage all that knowledge and go off on your own, trying other things. And I'll tell you, from my experience, not every idea is a good one. You got to test it out. So I've pretty much for this game design guide, I've taken all of my knowledge of designing a game from scratch and just boiled it down. It's going to be roughly 10 or 12 pages, lots of pictures, but I walk you through all the steps and you have options pretty much laid out. I can't wait to see what people are going to do with this. That's going to be the coolest part. In fact, I think it's going to be interesting to see if people take multiple sets. So right now we've got a box with 217 parts. And so that's enough for four people to play. But there's nothing preventing you from buying a couple extra boxes and just making gigantic structures and having more people involved. That's going to be interesting. A game of 20, 20 people. <laughs> I've not played games with more than four people, but I talked to people who have. And they said, you know, it's, um, it's hit or miss. Sometimes when you've got eight people in the game, it just takes a long time for your turn to come back around. It's like, go make a sandwich, then come back. So there's, there's trade-offs. Right, right. You'd have to think of a way to design that aspect out of the game, the waiting too long with more players. Yeah, we also see um, with kids, especially with teams. So you can set up a two-player set and there's two people on each team and they're kind of uh, discussing their moves and strategizing. Oh, that's awesome too, yeah. So could you share a little bit about the reception in educational context or homeschool context? Yeah, I think the educational demographic has been our uh, most excited fans by far. And this is just like kind of a happy accident for me. I was just trying to design an awesome game that was reasonable and efficient to manufacture and was open-ended. And even though I'm a teacher, I didn't, this, this system has just been perfect for education. So I think that's a, you know, a testimony to the being creative and open-ended and that always is good for education. But it's funny, that wasn't the, the first idea. I just want to make sure this thing was fun and was just innovative in every possible way. I think that's super awesome that it's something that happened out of just what the game was. It's something that kind of taps into that creativity and design thinking and collaboration. And you can bring that into your classroom. That's really cool. It's funny to describe designing a game as hard work because after all, your goal is fun. But I, I, had, I think we had just enough time to do it and that made a big difference. So one thing is I, without working on a client project like this, I just probably spent about two years testing each idea, each component, each piece, some of the rules, going back and forth. And then also a big part of the testing I should mention is the 3D prototyping. 3D printers now are, are really popular and affordable. And this made all the difference. So I'd say up until like a few years ago, you wouldn't have done this because each part would have only gotten to a certain level of refinement. Because, you know, when you get it close, you're just still looking on the screen. Then you send it out for printing and it's going to cost you a bit of money and it's going to take a week before it comes back. 
But with that printer in my office, I mean, that made all the difference. I could come up with an idea. If it's a small enough part, it would print in an hour or two. And then I would look at it and make sure it worked by connection or, or aesthetically or functionally, you know, evaluate it. And quickly I could go, okay, this was a great idea, but it doesn't work. And I would go back on the computer and make some 3D changes. And then sometimes twice a day I could to iterate the process. So that would have been, that twice in one day would have probably been several weeks before the advent of 3D printing. Right. So I, that really surprised me. Even though I teach uh, 3D modeling and always um, promote prototyping to validate stuff, just having that thing in my office has made a, made a gigantic difference. And it was, just for an example, I've determined all the parts in the set now have been changed so many times that I think they're all version four, five, or six. So you wouldn't have had that if you did the traditional method without 3D printing. You would have tried to get it as close as you could and then would have gone into production and then maybe you would have caught some of the problems, but definitely not all of them. So I think we've got this pretty well refined. Right. Yeah. It's it's amazing what technology can do and just the process of building things and how quickly we can iterate and design something and turn it around and design again and <laughs> test again. I can't stress how important that was having this iteration because when you're doing something new and innovative, you're constantly going to be bumping into the, the boundaries of, of feasibility or, um, or, or rules that don't make any sense. But just having the amount of time to test it and tweak it, whether it was parts, whether it was the aesthetics or whether it was the rules, they all kind of blended together. Awesome. So you also teach at Otis College of Art and Design. What are some things that your students learn through this design process? You mentioned you helped them or they helped playtest Gridopolis and you worked on that a bit collaboratively. What was that experience like? Well, it's it's got good parts and bad parts. So I think any designer has gone through this experience when uh, you have a little bit of emotion attached to your design. You spent a lot of time on it and that can actually... <laughs> cause problems because you need to test it in the real world. So stuff I thought was just fantastic or cool and amazing. Other people are like, eh, kind of neutral about it or it didn't work at all. Or they kept doing the wrong thing with what I thought was obvious ways. So we've, we switched out parts. We, some parts uh, went away. Other parts got added to the set. Some of the pieces actually changed size and shape because we've, we found problems reaching in because it's three dimensional on a flat board. Everything's accessible. When the structure goes up three, four, five levels, that's a factor. You got to be able to reach in there to move and jump. So I, I try to avoid getting any emotional attachment to any idea. I think that was another key thing. I mentioned collaboration, but also the, in the testing environment, you got to just be open to better ideas. And I think I've been able to do that. You know, I wouldn't say that's true when I first started out, maybe the first year or two as a designer. But over time, you kind of just develop this attitude of best idea wins. It doesn't matter who came up with it. And so I've kind of evolved quite a bit that just, I love this feeling of collaboration. So for me, there was, it was all about the positives and I never took it personally. I always thought, okay, we've eliminated something that people don't like. So the next thing we replace it with will be better. It's going to continue to improve. Right, right. It's all about, again, that design process and going through what works and what doesn't. Yeah, that's really important. So if there's any designers out there and you're just getting started, what you want to be careful is to get objective, even harsh criticism 
this sounds a little counterintuitive, but I'll explain it. So you're probably familiar with you ask friends or family, hey, here's a sketch, here's a concept. And they go, that's great, Dave. That's not as useful as somebody who goes, you know what? This is no good. And here's nine reasons why. You got to think about this. That person just spent way more time and effort coming up with nine reasons and writing them down compared to your friend who goes, yeah, it's great. To me, that's kind of lazy. I want to hear the justification as an opportunity to, to fix things. Right. It's, it's about what, what's not working. <laughs> you want to hear the things that aren't working so you can change those and not validate, <laughs> validate the things that are. Exactly. You want to identify them and eliminate them. And that's hard for, I'd say, most people. Awesome. Dave, so before we go into the final segment, do you have a last word of advice maybe or a reason why a teacher or a homeschooler would pick up this game, Gridopolis, and use it as a maybe a teaching tool? Yeah, I would say that any activity where you can get kids to interact with each other and be creative, but also have some of that logic and strategy at the same time. And don't forget that it's three-dimensional. So there's a lot of three-dimensional visualization. That's an important skill to have, especially for potential creators or designers. And then I would say the social aspect should not be underestimated. We, we coined the term STEM without screens, but I think social should be mentioned in that, in that little uh, catchphrase. And that is, so the players, the kids, the parents, the grandparents, whoever's there are interacting with each other. And I think that's, there's too little of that in a lot of activities, especially with screens, Netflix and YouTube. That's typically something you're not sharing, but in education, I think it's even more important. So that's really the, the, been the focus, getting people to work with each other, to play the games, to learn strategies, logic, math, visualization, but also just be part of a group. Right. And one thing you mentioned was grandparents and something we didn't get a chance to mention now, but we chatted about the other day was it's very, I think it's a very cross-generational game. I haven't had a chance to play it with my wife's parents, but I think they would enjoy it because they are familiar with those game mechanics that you mentioned, checkers, chess, where younger kids love the 3D aspect. And then also they're familiar with those game mechanics as well, but they want maybe a little bit of variety in the game or a little bit of uh, I guess spark. That's a different. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, that was also very important from the very beginning. I didn't want to design something just for a narrow niche of nerds. I wanted something to be the whole family could play if they wanted to. This educational component was also just kind of a, an extra benefit. And even what we call the game geeks, people who like to do completely hack and mod existing games, they can just go to town on this. So this goes back to my childhood. Some of my best memories are when we had family over, especially the grandparents, and we're able to play games and just have a great time in the same room with friends and family. So that was just another one of those challenges I threw into the mix. Something that was fun and different that people of all ages could play. And that kind of ties into the original idea I mentioned earlier, where we, we didn't want to have something so complicated that you end up with, uh, some games will do this. There's a a hundred page manuals for some fantasy games. I wanted to leverage existing knowledge. And so uh, that would just make the a much shallower entry point. And then the complexity being in three-dimensional, it makes it just, you know, continually challenging, easy to get into, almost impossible to master. So that was uh, one of the challenges as well. Awesome. So let's head into our final segment, which is a thumbs up, thumbs down, quick lightning round. 
I'm going to give you a statement and you need to give me a thumbs up and a reason why you might like it or a thumbs down a reason why you might not like it. Okay. All right. So the first one is going to be Minecraft. I say thumbs up. I like that thing. I played it and um, it's very open-ended and that allows for creativity. Although <laughs> some of the earlier versions, it was more about just digging and blowing stuff up. I think there's a lot more to it. Uh, and I, I like seeing people build just crazy structures. And you can uh, now go in with other people. So I say thumbs up. Awesome. I kind of I kind of chose these as a theme around Gridopolis. So the next one is Legos. Ah, many thumbs up. <laughs> Three thumbs up. I would say um, infinite creativity. Just a system that you can pretty much do anything. Awesome. And the next one is, if you're familiar with it, Connects. Yes. Yeah, those are, I have not, uh, I don't think I've owned any. I'm very familiar with the company. So it's a thumbs up. I think it's a creative system, but it was very abstract. That was the one thing when they first came out, there was a very limited group of parts. And as they expanded over time, it got much better. And I think it's fantastic now. So you can do vehicles, you can do characters. And I think that's what they're missing at the very beginning. It was, it was just assembling stuff that wasn't really anything. It was It was very abstract and it was cool for that. But I think... It's easier for people to identify if you have something recognizable, like the characters or vehicles or whatnot. Right, right. I think I remember, I don't know if it, it came out when I was younger or if it just became, started becoming more popular, but I remember a commercial with like a huge Ferris wheel that you built. Yeah, that was the, that was the probably the only interesting example I ever saw. <laughs> but it had to be gigantic because the parts were a certain size. And right. You had to get a whole bunch of them and then all of a sudden, okay, we have a Ferris wheel. All right, and the last one is AR in board games. Oh, so this is a couple years down the road, but we're looking at AR. Thumbs up for that too. Here's the problem though. AR for flat board games, you might be able to see players or, or characters or animated whatever. Right. That's not gonna add that much more to an otherwise flat experience. Uh, I'm really looking forward to as this company grows. We're gonna we're looking at doing an app in a couple of years where, on your mobile device, probably an iPad or tablet would be best. But being able to play in three dimensions where it's unlimited, especially if you project that onto your environment in AR. So imagine the set now is on your table. It's a certain size and it never gets too much bigger. But with AR, you can scale it up so that one foot tall tower can now be 10 feet tall and you can walk around it and plan your next move. So I'm looking forward to that happening. Some of the best ones are really expensive, but it's coming down. It's gonna be uh, in a couple more years or less. It should be a much more of a commodity and, and way more common. That's super awesome. I'm excited for that. So Dave, thank you again for coming on the show. Would you mind sharing a little bit about maybe anything upcoming with you and or Gridopolis and where our listeners can find you? The best place to go is just the main website. We have everything is kind of focused around that hub, and that is gridopolis.games. So just as a reminder, it's not .com. There is new domains, gridopolis.games. So on that website, we have a download page. You might be interested in that. So everything is free. So the game ships with just a single setup or grid set called Matrix. That's a two to four player. But we're coming up with new grid sets all the time. So there's another three or four there all for free. There's also a lesson plan for teachers or homeschoolers, how to incorporate it into an educational environment. And the next thing that we should be posting in the very near future is the game design guide I touched on earlier. 
So you can take the the modular parts and the modular rules and come up with something no one's ever seen before. Super awesome. Well, thank you again, Dave, for sharing a bit about Gridopolis and a bit about how you came up with the idea and how we can use it in educational context. You're welcome. Uh, and thanks for inviting me. As always, thank you for listening. And again, go to boardgamewitheducation.com, sign up for our newsletter, get in on that special discount for our course that is coming out here in about a week. And as always, teach better, learn more, and most importantly, always, always play some games. Lately, I've been playing Food Chain Magnet. What about you? Thank you for listening in this week. If you like what you heard, be sure to let us know. You can find us on social media as Board Gaming with Education or BGE Games, or email us at podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com. If you want to support our podcast, be sure to check out our support page on our website. As always, teach better, learn more, and most importantly, play more. Thank you for listening, and until next time.